enough. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome. singing because we're doing a musical episode. Yeah, we really are. Welcome to quarantine Sode. It's another quarantine Sode. I think it's quarantine Sode 24. I can't know. I have no concept of time anymore. No idea. But it is a musical um, quarantine Sode for you today because we're going to be talking about what we think the worst musicals are. Yay. Yeah. And we're going to sing the whole time. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun for everyone. <laughs> Uh, we're both acting students, but neither of us are really singers, so that wouldn't be fun for anyone at home. No. I am a person who often sings, like, what I'm doing. Like, I'll, like... You, like you sing in the car. Anytime you've driven me anywhere, um, you're like, and we're making a left, and this guy's going a little bit fast, but we're just gonna let him merge. Like, you'll just kind of sing your way through the journey. Yeah, I do it's, that. It's your kind of anxiety coping mechanism. Yeah, and I do that in my day-to-day -day life as well. Like, yeah. I'll end, like, a Zoom call, and I'll be like, that's enough. That's <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a real joy when we lived together to just hear you from, like, like, you drop your toothbrush, and you're like, but da, but da that's okay, we're gonna pick it up. <laughs> like, just kind of singing your way through life. Yeah. It's like dancing through life, singing through life. These we don't want to sing through life. Um, these are our least favorite musicals, um, or what we consider the worst. I yeah. guess I kind of went with my least favorite, but I'm going to tell you why I think it's the worst. Like, yeah. oh, it's the worst, but not. It's like not the worst musical. But I'll tell you about that in a second. Sam, which musical are you doing? Yeah. So interestingly, I went with what I feel is the worst musical, but it's I find it entertaining still. <laughs> yeah, I literally, when you said you were doing this, I was like, how dare you? I love it. <laughs> and this, and the one I'm doing is considerably good. Like, it's, it's kind of, it's well regarded. It's well regarded. I just think it's trash. Yeah. And I, so, so Sam, tell me about Love Never Dies. You guys, the thing about love is that it never dies. It um, never dies. <laughs> I want to say just to start, um, I watched this musical many years ago. There's a taped version of the 2012 Australian production. So that's how I have seen this musical. Um, and you know that I thought it was bad because usually when I watch things, even if they're like comically bad or just weird or interesting, I immediately show everyone I know. That's the thing mm -hmm. about me. Uh, Allie, have I ever shown you Love Never Dies? You, you didn't this time. No, no. And I watched it years ago in an apartment that we shared. And, I never and you, showed, you chose not to share it with me. Because it wasn't good. It wasn't even fun to me. God, I disagree. <laughs> How dare you, honestly. Um, How but, do you know respect? I know, for Andrew. <laughs> um, but my disclaimer, it's not even a disclaimer, but to, to remind myself about this, because I did watch it quite a few years ago, um, Lindsay Ellis, who was a video essayist that we both love and have cited many times, has a podcast called Musical Splaining, where she talks about musicals with a friend of hers who is like totally not familiar with musicals. And she famously loves Phantom of the Opera, so they did an episode on Love Never Dies that I listened to today to kind of remind myself. Um, so just if this is at all funny to you, please go listen to her episode, because I was like laughing out loud as I was doing spreadsheets. It's so funny. Um, and if I steal her jokes, I'm sorry. She's hilarious, and I'm going to a little bit. 
Um, but I think it's allowed. I she steals allowed. Jonathan Van Ness's jokes in her Game of Thrones video and cites him. So I'm just doing the same to you now, Lindsay. I love mm. you. Um, I'm sure she's a listener. I bet she is. But so for those of you who've been eagerly anticipating what this is, Love Never Dies um, is the sequel to Phantom of the Opera. A crazy uh, sentence. A crazy <laughs> sentence. A crazy sequel sentence. to Phantom of the Opera. Musicals don't usually get sequels. Like, performed Broadway-style musicals, they're usually pretty much one and done. Like, there's really not... Movies get a lot of sequels. Musicals really don't. Um, and I guess there's a reason for that. Yeah, it's like, and there's a reason for that, I think, yeah. for sure. So basically, Andrew Lloyd Webber, he wrote Phantom of the Opera... If you haven't heard of Phantom of the Opera, you're lying. You've heard of it. Even if you're not a Broadway person, it is in the cultural zeitgeist. You've heard of Phantom of the Opera. It's like, oh, I'm not a theater person. You don't have to be one. No. And you probably watched the, is the 2007, 2004 movie? Yeah, the movie. 2004, I think. Which was, is like my guiltiest pleasure. Me too, me too, man. I love it. It's bad. And it's, again, it's like, it's bad. It's It's a bad bad film. It's a bad film of a, of a good musical. Yes. But I love it. <laughs> but so basically, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote that musical. It was a smash, huge success. And he was like, I think we're going to write a sequel to this guy. So what he does, interestingly enough, is commission someone to write a book that's like a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera so that he can then adapt that book into a musical. So he basically Did he just do that so he could get the adaptation, Tony? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but I doubt he got that, Tony. But he literally, like, sat down with this guy, and he's like, here are the elements I want in it. Like, it should be set in New York. Like, give me a freak show. Let's do this. Let's do that. And the guy was just like, okay. Wrote this book. Angela Rubber w- read the book. He was like, oh, no. Put it down <laughs> for years. And then he was like, ultimately like, all right, well, maybe we can work with this. And years later, he started writing Love Never Dies, the Phantom of the Opera sequel. Uh, and the other fun fact about it that I'm going to say before I launch into a quick synopsis of the plot is that he was writing it on this like piano that records what you're playing. So he didn't need to like take notes of like the score. He could just play it and it would be saved in the piano, I guess. It's like a special kind of piano. Crazy. And then his cat stepped on the piano perfectly and deleted the entire score of Love Never Dies. And then the second time he just didn't try that hard, I guess. He constructed from memory, which is hilarious, objectively. From what, Sam? (laughs) (laughs) I did have, I did have like the, when you said Love Never Dies, I wanted to be like, it's so much you guys it's just so much from front to start so just to give you like a the quickest plot synopsis um it's 10 years after the events of phantom of the opera the phantom is alive which he's he just kind of like mysteriously disappears you don't think he's dead at the end of phantom of the opera but he's just kind of like oh he's gone mysteriously away okay he now lives in New York on Coney Island, and he runs, like, a vaudeville show slash freak show called Phantasma, um, and he's become very successful doing that. Uh, and he's with two other characters from the original musical, who is Madame Jury, who was, like, the strict ballet tutor, and Meg Jury, her daughter, who was Christine's, like, best friend, and Christine's obviously the protagonist of the original musical. 
And so he has this big number about how he really wants to hear Christine sing again. I think it's called Till I Hear You Sing. Till I hear you sing once more. That one. And that's what opens the show. Um, And then we meet like the, and like these are such like antiquated terms, like the freaks from his freak show. Like it's it's fucking weird that Andrew. It's very weird and reductive. Yeah, reductive. But that's the place. And so he's, you know, he's got this thing. Meg Jury is doing like a vaudeville performance. Fine. Christine rolls up. It's been 10 years since the first one with um, her husband, Raul Deshaunier, um, who she ends up with at the end, and her son, Gustave, who is um, approximately 10 years old. So they roll into town because Christine is supposed to sing at this vaudeville phantasma, not knowing who the owner is. Um, and Raoul has become like an alcoholic and he's gambling away their fortune. So she had to take this job because like they don't have any money because Raoul's such a bad guy. So like if you thought there was any nuance to her choice at the end of Phantom, never mind. <laughs> he was always kind of milk toast. Yes, but he wasn't, you know, an abusive drunk. Game. No, he wasn't an abusive drunk, but I was always team like go have sex with the phantom underground yeah. um, because I'm a freak. But well, do I have some news for you, Al? <laughs> but, oh, no, 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 I know. But I get why she chose the way she chose. Yes. yes. I understand we're all doing the best we can. Absolutely. She, cho- she chose Raul because he was the, he was the easier white bread option. Yes. Yes, absolutely. He was. Um, but so Christine's like in her hotel. She's like putting her, approximately 10 year old son to bed yep (laughs) um, phantom dramatically appears um something that i love so this musical a thing about it is that it's never been on broadway and it's never been like finished so like every version of it is slightly different because andrew lloyd weber is kind of like still trying to make it good like his fever dream that he keeps waking up from yeah even though it's been in like big huge productions since like 2011 in different places like to this day still new productions he's writing new weird stuff but so in the australian production that i watched what happens is christine hears like something familiar from phantom of the opera she turns her patio doors dramatically swing open and in the fog is the phantom and he steps forward and she, like this, dramatically faints, of course. Yep. And he like lifts her and carries her to like a bed or a chair. And then she like awakens and they have like a confrontation. Today in preparation for this, I watched a version of it that is um, Sierra Bojess and Raman, Raman Karamalu who are like two very famous Broadway actors who are very, very famous for their portrayals of Christine and the Phantom in like Phantom of the Opera. His voice is like butter. It's outrageous. So good. It's It's gorgeous. And she's so good. And she's, yes, she's very good as well. There were as many as like the best and they kind of are. Yeah, for sure. But he is, Hot. He's a hot Phantom. But so the blocking in that version starts the same where like she's like cleaning up, she hears the music and she like freezes and the same thing happens where the door is dramatically open and the smoke and there's the phantom, but she doesn't turn around until he's just there. So she's just like kind of frozen. It's so awkward and it's going like, bah! 
like in the doorway and all the comments on youtube were like christine you're missing his whole entrance like he did this whole thing and you're ignoring him christine he's like i brought the lighting guys in here to like set up the dry ice and everything and you're not even paying attention he was not even paying attention but so then we get the best slash worst song in the whole musical pretty much the only one i'm even going to talk to you about um and it's called beneath a moonless sky and what is revealed in the number beneath the moonless sky it's eight minutes long and basically what we find out is that christine and the phantom fucked once yep. right before she got married to Raoul. beneath the moonless sky she she sought him out before her wedding and he she found him they had sex three times very specifically it says they had sex three times that night I'm forgetting the lyrics, but I don't know how they could have gracefully put that in there. I know. Well, the lyric is just, they're singing about them having sex, like, and I touched you, and I kissed you, and I held you, oh, no, 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 which yes. is how the whole song sounds. And then they say, um, again, and then again. So that means they had sex. You're again. like, if we are looking at this scientifically, we can surmise three, three times. populations as it were. Right. And then he woke up before her. He was worried that, like, seeing his face in the light of day, she would freak out. So he left. But she was like, I was ready to, like, leave Raoul and be with you. But when I woke up, you were gone. So then I just married Raoul. And it's 10 years later now. And he's like, whoa. <laughs> what a crazy time. Well, anyways, there's no way forward for us. Um, and she's like, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if I should perform here. He's like, you really should. Um, or else, you know, maybe I'll kill your son. And she's like, please don't do that. And he's like, I can't, I'm the Phantom. I can't promise you anything. I'm never gonna be predictable. I'm the Phantom of the Opera. I can't be predictable. That's not part of my brand. But you, you have to perform. She's like, fine. And then the next day, he takes her son, Gustav, like, into the basement, I guess, of this module theater. It's all coming back to me now. Yeah, just, like, hanging out with him, I think. Um, and he's, like, Gustav's meeting all, like, the people who work at the theater, and he's, like, very intrigued by this kind of dark underbelly of a world. And Gustav plays a little bit of piano, and he's very good at it. Um, and the Phantom's like, wait a minute. This black-haired boy... <laughs> the son of the woman I had sex with 10 years ago. Who's is 10 young, now. <laughs> is a young piano prodigy, and he's 10 years old. And the no, that's old. not a line, is it? Yes. Yes. No. Come on. Like that. He sings it exactly like that, obviously better. But that's the line. He realizes that Gustav is his son, which, like, obviously. <laughs> Obviously. But at that point, he's like, okay, everything I own, I will leave to Gustav now that I know he's my child. Like, I won't kill him. Like, I was maybe going to just for fun. Okay. Um, I won't do that. And I'll leave him all my money. And Christine's like, that would be good of you because I never got any child support. So good. Madame and also, my husband is an abusive gambling piece of shit. So. Yes. And Madame Jury, like, overhears this. And she is furious because she's been the one helping the Phantom all these years. And she thought she was going to inherit all of his money. So she's just kind of mad in the background now. Cut to act two. 
Um, oh. Al is having a drink at a bar, and he suddenly realizes that the bartender is the Phantom. It's like in The Shining, when he realizes the bartender's the murderer. It's so funny, and he's like, huh! <laughs> and the Phantom's like, do you want to do a bet? And Raul's like, I am addicted to gambling. Yes. And the Phantom's like, okay, if Christine sings tonight, as she is contractually obligated to do, um, she and Gustav have to stay with me and you have to go back to Paris alone. But if she doesn't sing tonight, um, I will pay off all of your debts and the three of you can leave together. And Raul's like, good, I will take that bet. And obviously he goes to Christine, he's like, babe, don't sing tonight. She's like, why? I'm contractually obligated to. And he's like, I'm not gonna give you a reason. <laughs> I just don't you. want you to. I'm controlling. Haven't you gotten used to that? Yeah. And she's like, ugh, Raul. And then the Phantom comes in. He's like, Christine, definitely sing tonight. And here's like a giant, a comically large necklace to wear as a symbol of, you know, my ownership over you. And she's like, okay. So she sings that night. Obviously, Raul goes. Um, oh, I forgot. Meg's in love with the Phantom. Meg's your oh, yep, that's part of it. And she's very mad that his attention has been on Christine and his, her mom is like only encouraging that because her mom is also super bitter. So Christine and the Phantom are like, we're gonna be together. We're gonna give this a real shot. Where's Gustav? <laughs> Where'd he go? <laughs> and they find out Megjury has gone crazy and has kidnapped him and is dragging him to a spooky pier because they're on Coney Island, dragging him to a spooky pier. He cannot swim. That was <laughs> noted very early in the score. Um, so they all rush there, and the Phantom is de-escalating a situation, which, if the Phantom of the Opera is the most reasonable person in your company, like, yep. you're going to have a bad time. So he's trying to, like, talk Meg down, and it's, like, almost working, and he's like, you know, you and me, Meg, we're the same, like, we've both had to work very hard for everything we've ever gotten, and Meg's like, that's true. And he goes like, yeah, we can't all be perfect like Christine. And Meg's like, Christine! And so she freaks out and accidentally shoots Christine with a gun. Yep. Christine um, dramatically, of course, uh, falls into the Phantom's arms. She's like, Gustav, this is your real dad. Gustav is like, what? Now I have to watch my mom die and get a new daddy. Um, Christine dies. And the Phantom and Gustav just kind of, I guess, keep living on Coney Island. What happens to Meg? I forget. Does she jump off the pier or something? No, I think she just is like, oh my god, I didn't mean to shoot Christine. And then we just kind of leave her. And the Phantom's like, you're fired. Yeah, I would assume, yes, she's fired for killing Christine. But so the thing about this musical is that, um, A, for me, Phantom of the Opera is not... And this might be a hot take, but I don't even mean it. It's a romantic story, but it's not a love story. When I watch The Phantom of the Opera, I'm not like, wow, a love triangle. Who will Christine choose? I'm like, wow, Christine is swept up in like this charismatic man who is actually perhaps dangerous. And like, meanwhile, there's like this man who's not understanding her and where she's coming from. And like, how will she navigate all of these complex emotions and feelings inside of her and da da da. Like, I'm never like, oh my God, which of her boyfriends will Christine choose? But that's the only thing that the sequel is about. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the first one is about the theatricality of romance. 
gifts and yeah. about the theatricality of like intrigue almost mm -hmm. and it's very that's why it's good because it's kind of like what's behind the curtain I need yeah. to know and like the the rush that you get from that experience of being like what's gonna happen mm -hmm. um rather than like who's gonna hook up tonight yeah. whereas absolutely you're right that's what the, that's the only thing the second one is about. that's the only thing the second one is about as if we were all waiting for that which i feel yeah. most of us weren't and we were all like i'm good yeah we were all like i'm honestly fine um the music is not good most of the songs you can point to and be like oh so this is that song from piano of the opera so like you hear till i hear you sing and you're like oh so this is music of the night like you hear <laughs> yeah you hear beneath a moonless sky and you're like, oh, this is past the point of no return. Like it's exactly. just one to one, so uninspired, Mu like musically, the plot is uninspired, the characters are doing things that make no sense for them to be doing. And it ends with fucking Christine dead. And the whole first musical was kind of about her figuring her shit out and figuring out that obsession does not mean love, and figuring out like what she was trying to do and fighting against the systems around her in a way, even though she's still like pretty passive, at least she yeah. was doing something. And this, she's like beautiful, and then she dies. Yeah, I don't know if, it's like kind of like a reverse fridging. Yeah. Um, like all the stuff for the fridge happens beforehand and then she dies. But either way, she's disposable. Yeah. For sure, she because like she's only an object. To the phantom's emotions. Yep. Whereas in the first one, I feel like the Phantom was very much a reflection of her desires, wants, fears, like her wanting to be a great singer, her wanting to be like appreciated was like darkly mirrored in the Phantom, giving her those things at a huge cost. Exactly. Um, and in this one, it's like, which of her boyfriends will she pick? <laughs> it's not like a good. terrible bachelorette. But what I will say is it's also not, it's, it's crazy enough that it's not boring. So like, I will give it points for that because I, the thing I hate most, the things that I'm looking for in media, I've said before, are, uh, is it going to give me one feeling? I just need one. And um, is it going to make a bold choice for me? You love choices. You're love like a middle school drama teacher. I, you, love, you love a bold choice. I love a bold choice. Strong but wrong. That's yep. fine. Fine with me too. But um, as much as this does not make me feel an emotion, it is strong but wrong, which I respect. Yeah. Um, but it's not good. It should not ever go to Broadway. Uh, and it's hilarious that Andrew Lloyd Webber is still trying. It, so. Yeah, it is an absolute stain upon his legacy, but there's a lot of those. <laughs> so um, I definitely went over time, but that's where I'm at. That's, that's, that's Love Never Dies for you. I, I mean, I'm basically just going to talk I'm, I'm just gonna give you a slight over overview of mine. So I'm glad that all the time went to um, uh, Love Never Dies. It deserves- You've got actually interesting things to say. I'm excited for your opinion on this. I love to talk to you about uh, Marilee. I, so, so we're switching hats now from Andrew Lloyd Webber, one theatrical master to another, um, Stephen Sondheim, who, I was about to say, like, is divisive. He's not really divisive. People just generally like him. If you like theater, you like Sondheim. Very well part. respected. He's very well respected. Absolute, like, undeniably, yes, master of his craft. 
to a certain degree. And we were talking about this a little bit before. People are often like, oh, his songs are so difficult to sing. So that's why it's good. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, and neither do you. Yeah. But um, Stephen Sondheim. How do I describe Stephen Sondheim to somebody who's never seen Stephen Sondheim? So some of his works are Sweeney Todd, Into the Woods. Um, the music for West Side Story. Yes, he did the music for West Side Story. Um, he did Sunday in the Park with George. And he did Merrily We, Merrily we Roll Along. Um, a show that I hate, and that is the show that I'm going to talk about today. Um, only because it is emblematic of a genre that I don't like, have never liked, and find to be problematic. And I'll explain why. So Stephen Sondheim, in a couple, does, does this thing I'm about to describe in a couple of his musicals. But Merrily We Will Along is a musical. Um, <laughs> and that's all it is. And that is all it is. Um, it's a musical, basically, that chronicles a composer and his life and how the people in his life revolve around him and um, the kind of trials and tribulations of becoming a famous composer. Mm -hmm. So, and it also, it moves backwards. So we start with him being famous and his life's kind of fallen apart. And then you move back and you see, oh, he's just married his mistress. And then you move back and you see, oh, he's divorcing his wife because of the mistress. And then you move back and you see, oh, he's happy with his wife and then they have a child and whatnot. And you move back. And it's all centered around, he has these two friends. Hey, old friend, how do you stay? Old friend, that's from Merrily. <clears throat> People are gonna hate me for this, by the way. People fucking love Barrel We Roll Along. And they love Stephen Sondheim. And they are allowed to be wrong. No, I'm just kidding. It's it's fine. It's fine if you like that. If that's your jam, I'm not judging you at all. It's just never been mine, and I, I think I need to express why. And I do think it's a little I use this word already, but I do think it's a little reductive, but I don't think it's over super intelligent. And I think a lot of people like to act like when you're introspective, you're intelligent. Mm -hmm. and you can be introspective and dull and men particularly are often introspective and dull mm -hmm. um so I think that that's important to point out so the problem that I have with men writing about men in general or men writing about a male protagonist who has had similar life experiences that they have had is that it always ends up feeling so masturbatory. Yep. It's, I've never experienced, I don't know about never, I've never experienced a white cis man writing about their experiences, their lived experiences in a way through through a fictional protagonist, I should say. There's pieces of nonfiction or things that are influenced by a lived experience. That's not really what I'm talking about. There's good art kind of to be found everywhere. But what I'm talking about is things like Merrily We Roll Along, things like Marriage Story, um, things like 
I'm sorry, Sam, the last five years by Jason Robert Brown. I know, I know. I know it hurts. Um, you know, a, when men who have some kind of creative gift talk about how hard it is to have a creative gift and the burdens that it bears. Yeah. It I just do, feels... It's especially artists writing about artists. It's artists writing about artists. writing about a brilliant composer. Directors writing about a brilliant director. Yeah, I have a little bit more respect for, I always liked Tick, Tick, Boom. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's like my one <laughs> that I was okay with. Um, but I, I just feel like men are applauded for recognizing having feelings all the time. And women never get that luxury. We have to be so creative and inventive with the way that we transform our narratives into fiction, into story that's going to be consumed by mass audiences. And men can just be like, this is what happened to me. And here's how everybody reacted to it. And the other thing is that there's a common thing in all the, on all of the stories that I just mentioned. There's always an obsession with the genius of the man in question. Mm -hmm. And everyone, like, there's a bunch of songs that are about, like, how he's, like, a god when it comes to whatever they do. And in Marriage Story, they were like, oh, he's this amazing director and he's so good at what he does. And I'm like, look, I want to fuck Adam Driver just like the rest of us. But... There's no way that he matters so much that it's affecting your marriage. Mm -hmm. There's no way he's so special that it's affecting his relationship. That's because that's how men, I think, think sometimes is I am so important and special that my, not, <laughs> I was about to say not all men, but there is a theme of men making narratives that are surround themselves because they are taught to believe that their perspective is so unique and unflappably important mm -hmm. that everything needs to revolve around it, everything needs to move out of its way, and that is what promotes patriarchy. And I fucking hate it, and I hate it in art. I don't like Jack Kerouac. That's separate, but part of it. You know what I mean? I just, David Mamet can eat my ass also. Yeah, for real though. Part of it. Um, there's just so many examples of this, of just men writing for men who, who make art the way they're making art, and then just jacking off all over it. And then other men read it and think that behavior is okay, and it drives me goddamn bananas. So, so that's why I don't like Merrily We Roll Along. Steven Sondheim's not a bad dude. It's not the worst play. Mm -hmm. It's just that's such an obvious example of this problem to me. And Marriage Story isn't a musical, so I couldn't pick that. <laughs> and it does, it also, it suffers from something that I see, even in works that I like, like even, even in Hamilton, right, which is very much in the public discourse right mm -hmm. now, there's this thing about like every woman in the show is in love with the main protagonist. <laughs> Do we need that? Does that ever happen? There's not a woman in Merrily who's not in love with Frank. Like, yep. she does not appear in the show. Like, like he, there's this, there's this character who's a really good character in all purposes, except she has, she's always nursing this quiet love for mm -hmm. him. And it was, I'm like, 
it would be such a better character if she was just like, dude, I'm your friend and you're acting like an asshole and not being like, you shouldn't do this because you should be with me because I love you. It it undermines all the other characters and all the female characters. Absolutely. And it's true. Like, it does always make me sad when I watch Hamilton and the girls are like, me, I loved him. Yep. I don't love that. As as much as it's like, well, Peggy didn't. (laughs) It's like, But she also plays somebody else who fucked him. So what are you going to do? But I, um, I see that in a lot of shows, I feel like, like this weird, like, well, you're only a woman in the show, important if you are in love with the main character on the fringe. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. But all of the other male characters in Hamilton have lives that have nothing to do with women. Mm-hmm. And the women have everything to do with the man that they're pining for. Yeah. Or that they're in service to. Yeah. And I think that's um, just, and, and except for Peggy, Peggy, feminist icon, Peggy, feminist icon, but like, and I'm not saying like Hamilton, she's problematic. Like there's no, I'm not saying that either, but it's like, it's the, it's even there. You know what I mean? There in a show that is trying to work against some of that stuff, let alone in a merrily. <laughs> yeah. Lo- so it- I'm just saying, and then I also want to talk about I forget his name, but I swear to God I would use his full name if I remembered it. There was a guy in my playwriting class in college who um, who wrote a play that was about that was about three him and his three girlfriends. So like if his name was Ethan, he made the protagonist's name Beethan or yeah. something. Like it rhymed with his name. Yeah. And I you in when this was happening, I remember you talking to me. About and, and I, and I, oh, and I remember he wrote a play that was about, there were like three scenes with each of his girlfriends. And then there was a scene about all of his girlfriends in a room talking about him. And then there was another scene that was him and a male friend of his talking about a burrito. And I was just like, this is, this is male, this is male narrative. This is the male aesthetic of narrative. And if you can't give me be- something better than that, put your fucking pen down. I, it doesn't belong in the world. Just find something else to talk about or be quiet. That's also fine. Um, also, I ripped him a new asshole that day. I was like, so you're writing this about you, obviously. This is just a reflection of you. And he's like, oh, well, I mean, there's maybe some influences. And I was like, you made it your name. <laughs> like, and I basically was just like calling him a sexist. And um, sweet Andrew Clark, who was our playwriting press at the time, didn't really say anything. And I think he was probably like, I can't say this, yeah. but I'm going to let you say it, which was very nice. I appreciated that. So I guess I'm just saying like, if you're a straight white dude, think long and hard before you put art into the world. It's not that you shouldn't make art, it's that you are conditioned to make art that is masturbatory and useless, and that's something that you have to overcome if you want to put art into the world, I swear to God, like, and it's your, and like, that's your work. Everybody else has to do the work of like, making their work so good that it surpasses barriers, but that is the task of like, bros. Bros, if you're going to make art, think first. Yeah. That's my message for today. I love that message. And Andrew Lloyd Webber, if you're going to make any more art, maybe you also think.
Maybe don't. For a second. The opera is also one of those because he wrote it while he was dating um, a beautiful soprano singer named Sarah Brightman. And he was considered an ugly genius. And a lot of people are like, that's why he wrote Phantom. I didn't know that. But yeah, maybe. People are like, Phantom is about Sarah Brightman. (laughs) And then with their relationship after he wrote it ended very poorly. And um, Lindsay Ellis on her podcast was saying like, so it's interesting that Christine dies. It is interesting that Christine dies. If Phantom is still a self-insert for Andrew Lloyd Webber, then, uh... Oh, boy. That's but, crazy. But again, at least, he, he, at least he made a bold choice with it. If you're gonna write a self-insert story about the brilliance of a composer, at least make him an opera ghost. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, me, yes. I absolutely agree. If you have to do bad art, at least take a strong left turn that's going to give me something to pay attention to. Yes, yes. Oh, this is a long episode, but I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I think we got through what we needed to get through today. So thank you Absolutely. guys for sticking with us. Tech, thank uh, you all. Text us, tweet us your favorite. <laughs> text us, my number is 508. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, yes, tweet at us at I'm Horrified Pod. Um, what your least favorite musical is, what you think the worst musical is. Bad musicals, let me have them. And we'll tell you if we agree or not. Yeah, absolutely. I won't um, hold anything back. But we love you. We hope you're well. Um, and yeah, that's your job. Until next episode, be well, you guys. We love you. Be well. Bye, guys.